This is episode 33 of the Play DNA podcast. I'm Cassandra. I'm Damon. And I'm Sarah. And thank you guys so much for joining us. So last week, Damon talked a little bit about how games have been used to train the CIA, which I thought was super cool. So my topic is related to that. It's about how we have used games in warfare. Uh, But before we talk about that, let's talk about the games we played this week. Okay. Well, I got to play um, Taverns of Typhenthal with you guys. Yes. And I taught you a little bit of cribbage. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I also played a game called Punderdome, which sounds as amazing as it is. (laughs) Um, My sister-in-law came into town and she bought us Punderdome because she knows we like puns. So it's basically a game where you come up with puns. It's so fun. Sounds like your perfect game. It is not very highly rated on Board Game Geek because I think <laughs> puns in general are very divisive things, but I enjoyed it and so did Bo. <laughs> um, and then we also played An- Anomia. Is that how you say the name of that game? Anomia? Anomia? I don't know. It's the word association game. I don't know if you've played it before. Um, and then we also played Meeple Circus again and Welcome To. So those are the ones we nice. played. I think Punterdown sounds great. I don't know anything about it, but I like some puns. It is an excellent name and an excellent pun. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we played You Taught Me Cribbage, which I have technically played before, but I didn't remember it at all, so I learned it again. Uh, It is fun. I can see the appeal. It is, like, super nonsensical and (laughs) non-intuitive, so... Sarah was just like whipping through everything and like doing a ma- like math really fast in her head and I was like I I need to figure this out. Um but that was fun and then yes we played uh Taverns of Typhenthal which is like a deck building game beer themed. I thought the art was amazing. I wasn't a huge fan of the game necessarily. What did you think of it? I would definitely play more. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to play more with with more components. Um, and then we played Nova Luna, which is a really simple game, a really beautiful design. It's like a circular board, and you're supposed to be following the phases of the moon. The game itself has nothing to do with the moon or with any uh. of that. <laughs> it's just an abstract game. Um, it was it's kind of fun. I would, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the shape of the board, and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we also played Micropool, which is one of the games that Damon talked about in the pencil and paper episode. So we tried that out. Um, it's another abstract game. I would say it's... Very similar to Carcassonne in a lot of ways, and Carcassonne is more fun. So that's how I felt about it anyways. I think it's probably a better two-player game than Carcassonne. All right. Uh, those were so – we played a lot of games. I feel like all of us played a lot of games. Yeah. It's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So I am talking about games that have been utilized in warfare, not just games that people have played during war – because people play all sorts of games during wars, Um, but games that have actually been used by militaries. Um, And there's some some pretty fun stuff here. This sounds fun. I'm so excited. Yeah, there's some cool stuff. And uh, once again, some of this I got from the book called It's All a Game, 
great book with the history of games and uh, they had one of the chapters had a little bit about this and I included some of that information. All right. So we're going to start in 1940. The first year. The first year. It was a day like any other day at the Waddington's Game Publishing Company in Britain. Business was great, and a new client shows up to the company office and asks to see the head of the company, Norman Watson. Once the man had Watson alone, he told him that he was about to discuss a matter of national security and that discussing their conversation could result in fines and imprisonment. So this guy who was posing as a client, he was a man with the British Intelligence Agency. Um, He was an agent from M19, which was a special branch of the Secret Service, whose mission it was to help uh, prisoners of war escape from encampments. And they had actually already come up with some super creative ways to do this. The kinds of things that M19 would do is they would put little compasses in bars of soap and smuggle those in, or they would create these, uh, they had these uniforms that could be turned inside out to look like civilian clothes. So if you got out, you could put them on and and keep hidden. Uh, So they wanted some other things made to help in these uh, escape efforts. And they were coming to Waddington's, the company, for two very specific reasons. One is it was the only company at the time that could print onto silk. And Apparently, silk printing was like a really tough process, and it required many steps. They needed to be extremely carefully done. He was the only one who really knew how to do it um, in that area. And silk would make perfect maps for war prisoners because they wouldn't make a crinkling sound when they were held. Um, They could be kind of scrunched into anywhere, and you wouldn't have to worry about ruining it. Uh, If they got wet, the ink wouldn't run. There were a lot of great reasons to print maps on silk. Uh, And they wanted hundreds of thousands of these printed for, for all the people in their military. Secondly... Waddington's was the publisher of Monopoly, and M19 wanted to create Monopoly boards that were secret James Bond-style escape kits that could be distributed to prison camps. The head of the company, Norman Watson, agreed, and so this is how they made the board. The Monopoly board had these really thin compartments cut into it. And each compartment would hold either a compass, two files, uh, and a silk map. So all these things would be inside of the Monopoly board. And then among the fake paper money, they would stuff real money so that the prisoners could make bribes and buy provisions once they had escaped. Apparently, they they just thought, oh, there's so much money here. Nobody's going to go through all of it. So we can probably just stuff real money in here. Um, Certain property names on the board would have dots next to them, and this would indicate certain things um, and let the prisoners know that this was, in fact, a board that had these, you know, escape tools inside. So hundreds of these games were produced over the years. And M19 didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket, so they also enlisted Britain's chess and Snakes and Ladders publishers to do the same thing. So same thing, all of the boards had these little compartments cut into them. They would hide these materials. Now the question is, how are you going to get these games delivered to prisoners, right? Yeah, that's my, my main question is, 
the the first thing they do is go and like, all right, we need to produce a lot of Monopoly. Right? Yeah. All right. Step two is we need to convince the Axis that it's incredibly important to provide all of their war prisoners with copies of every major children's board game. Yes, and I will explain how they did that. Um, so they were actually like pretty decent. They're like pretty decent people. The war camps allowed like letters to be sent, which is pretty amazing, I feel. Um, like the war prisoners could accept letters from family members, which is actually how the military would send secret messages to the prisoners through these like family letters. Like they're very loose. Um, that makes no sense at all, but go y- ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so Germany In 1940 it made more sense. By 1942 I doubt they would have Yeah, won. I don't think I it'll they ever happen kept going again. But they thought like, they were gonna win. They that were the they were like very decent people and I mean <laughs> they were being very decent to their prisoners. Um and Britain decided to take advantage of that. So Germany, as a nod to the Geneva Convention, were allowing prisoners of war to accept care packages. So they were accepting care packages from the Red Cross and aid from other humanitarian groups. Um, And so they had this idea to fabricate a bunch of organizations and charities that would claim they wanted to provide supplies to their prisoners. Um, And they made a bunch of these, like all with different names. So they uh, said that one of them was the Prisoner's Leisure Hour Fund and one was the Liverpool Service Men's Club. And so they came up with all these fake names. They came up with addresses. They actually used the addresses of buildings that had been bombed for some oh, reason. Like that's what they did. Um, and they they said all these people wanted to deliver care packages. And Germany was like, sure, come on in. So they got these packages delivered. Um, at a certain point, chess was found out. Um, some board was discovered with compartments, and they never accepted chess boards again. Uh, but for some reason, they didn't I can only suspect. imagine the guy wagging his finger and is like, oh, you British, <laughs> you blokes, you tried to get me with your secret chess compartments, but I found you. Yeah, but, but no more chess for you. Maybe because Monopoly Snickle, is only so Snicks silly. and Ladders and Monopoly yeah. and Pachisi and Backgammon. Yeah. And and <laughs> maybe because Monopoly was so silly, they just like they just didn't look, they just didn't check. Um, and also, I think it helped a lot that all of these were being sent from supposedly different organizations. So whichever one was found out that had the chessboard, they were probably like, "We're never taking anything from you again." I guess at this little point, do they know they're all from the same. At this people. point, the SS just assumes that the British are real into their board games. <laughs> They're definitely well. They did have a lot of time. I'm sure people were actually playing board games. They're certainly playing card games, but yeah. When you first brought up that they changed the names of things, like you're talking about buildings and street addresses, I thought you were talking about the games themselves. Like, oh, what's this copy of Monopoly? <laughs> changing the names of some other component. <laughs> no, they were all called Monopoly, but that's hilarious. Um, so. How well could this work, right? Apparently really well. (laughs) So by the end of the war, 21,000 British prisoners had escaped camps, and it's estimated that a third of those escaped with the objects that they found inside of one of those games. That's astounding. Thousands of people use these games. It's pretty, yeah, it's astounding. It's incredible. 
Uh, so Americans actually had a similar strategy, but they used playing cards instead of board games. So they did something very similar. They teamed up with the U.S. Uh, playing card company to produce map decks. And these special cards, when soaked in water, could be peeled apart to reveal a map layer inside. And then once you had all the cards, you'd have to kind of like puzzle them together. And you, then you would have a map of an escape route. It's like very escape roomy. Like this That's is the kind so of thing cool. I would totally want to do in an escape room. <laughs> but someone's like, oh, they sent me half of this map and half of another map. Dang it. Yeah, well, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that would not happen. Um, <laughs> you can actually buy a commemorative version of these decks if you're interested. Um, not ones that you have to soak in water, but you can buy a deck that has like a map printed on it. And it, it's called a map deck. Um, so that I thought that was super cool. Uh, and unfortunately, in, in both of these cases, there's only a couple of pictures of the map decks that exist at all. You can find pictures of them. Um, no pictures of the mon Monopoly boards because these were unbelievably secretive. Like, these are these were super secret um, initiatives. And, like, the prisoners, when they destroyed their Monopoly board to get all of the things out of it, they would burn it. They would get rid of it because you can't leave any evidence behind or else you're found out. So, unfortunately, we don't have any of the Monopoly boards left that we can look at. Um, but there are a couple of the, the map decks. The final copy of Monopoly was destroyed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Monopoly. <laughs> I want to play that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so there are other uses of cards in warfare. And cards are one of the most common leisure activities during war. It's just so easy, right? They're really small. You can carry them anywhere. Everybody knows how to play cards. They're infinitely useful because you can play more than one game with the same pack of cards. Um, and a lot of effort has actually gone into making sure that cards are usable by soldiers. So, like, during certain battles or times... Uh, Cards have been manufactured differently to make sure that soldiers could still use them. Like if they're going to be fighting in a place that rains a lot, they make waterproof cards so that the soldiers can keep playing. Like it, it's that important that soldiers have something to do with all their leisure time and something to keep the morale up. Um, so some of the ways that these cards have been used is one is as passive education, kind of as passive flashcards. So during World War II, uh, they made an airline spotter deck. And this was a regular pack of cards, but it showed the silhouettes of different planes on each card from multiple angles. So that when you looked up into the sky, you could tell, oh, that's our plane, that's not our plane, this is the kind of plane it is. Um, and also they made a naval spotter version. So uh, same thing for boats. And these were just designed so that while people were playing cards, which they were, of course, going to do, you would be passively learning all of these shapes. That is so cool. I know. It's so interesting. I've never knew that before. Yeah, you can find pictures of this. And this is something that, again, you can buy a commemorative deck. And in this, uh, in this one, this is exactly what the cards looked like if you buy one of these commemorative decks. Um, so this idea has been used other times as well. So there have been a variety of most wanted decks created. And these are regular decks of cards, but each one has the face of a person. Uh, so during the Gulf War, each card represented a member of Saddam Hussein's government with wow. Saddam Hussein as the ace of spades. 
Now, wow. <laughs> yes. I know. Isn't that crazy? It's um, crazy. And they would actually refer to him as the Ace of Spades. Um, that's how, you know, well used these cards were. Uh, so the Ace of Spades itself actually has a special significance in the military. Uh, and I don't know if anybody here listening is like in, in the service and wants to weigh in on this. I would love to hear your thoughts. Like if this is still something that, um, you know, is, is done or that people use. But uh, so this started in World War II. In World War II, some battalions painted the Ace of Spades on their helmets. And this was as a symbol of good luck because the Ace of Spades is usually in games, it's a high value card. So that's why it was the Ace of Spades. And uh, so this went on in World War II. Um, it was like somewhat known that these people had these Ace of Spades painted on their helmets. Now, during the Vietnam War, a story was popularized by the media that claimed that soldiers were using the Ace of Spades card as psychological warfare. So what they claimed, what the media said, was that the Vietnamese people were extremely superstitious. And they thought that the symbol of the Ace of Spades was a symbol of death. And it was a symbol of bad omens, and it just, just seeing it freaked them out. Uh, so... It was, in fact, a common practice during the Vietnam War to place the Ace of Spades on dead bodies of Viet Cong soldiers. And, uh, yeah, they would just place them on their faces or place them in, in their collars. Um, it was also a common practice to scatter them in villages and forests. And the military actually got the U.S. playing card company to print decks entirely of the Ace of Spades. So I was the, wondering about that. This like, practice could continue. Like, what are doing thousands of decks and digging one card out yeah. of it? <laughs> yeah, they had entire decks of just the Ace of Spades so that they could do this. Um, so the reality is the, that folk tale was wrong. The Vietnamese people did not care about the Ace of Spades. They did not think it was scary. They didn't, you know, it, it had nothing to do with their superstitions, but it was a common practice, mostly because it did help the morale of American troops. Just to be more specific, the only thing this indicates is that American troops were super superstitious. Exactly. That is exactly <laughs> correct. It, it was like a, yes, it was kind of like Those a good Vietnamese luck charm. Those Vietnamese are really superstitious, so I'm going to do this crazy ghost thing all the time, and we should all be ghosts all the time, and then the ghosts... <laughs> are going to agree with us, and then we're going to win the war? <laughs> yeah. Because they're can so you, superstitious. Can you imagine being one of those other soldiers from, like, the Vietnam side? You're like, oh, this is a cool deck of cards. Let's play some cards. They're like, all it is is aces. They <laughs> 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 can't even play it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was just, like, I guess as far as people have said, it's it was like if you walked into a village and everybody was dead, which they probably did that quite frequently, um, then you would see like an Ace of Spades card on the dead bodies and you'd be like, oh, our boys have been here. And it would make you feel better. Like it would make you feel like you're a community. I um, But also, in, I was no Ace of Spades. You're like, oh, that was water buffalo. <laughs> 100% kill rate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You want to make sure it's your men who are the ones killing these guys. Not... The ghosts you're so convinced are <laughs> right. running wild because you're not superstitious because you're an American. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that I thought that was fascinating, and that's like pretty. That's a recent war, and I have never heard this before. No, that's uh, an interesting factoid for sure. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. 
so there are also special card decks that uh, they're actually still being printed. Uh, and these are called ordnance decks. And these decks are designed for war-torn areas, but they're actually specifically designed for civilian populations. And they're designed to show civilians what dangerous equipment and unexploded mines look like. So these are Oh my regular, gosh. I know. It gets dark here. Um, these are regular de decks of cards, but on each card it has a picture and it's like, this is an unexploded mine. Don't touch it. And uh, I totally see why they do it because some of these pictures, it's like, I would not know what, it just looks like a weird piece of plastic. Like, I don't know what that is. There's no reason that a regular person would look at it and think, oh yeah, don't touch that thing. It's going to explode. Um, so these are actually still commonly used by the UN. Like the UN often prints them and brings them with them to, to war-torn areas and hands them out to civilians. So um, that I thought was pretty cool. So here's um, an interesting note about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, that uh, you probably think about that being used in like third world countries and countries that have very primitive ideas of what these like mines might have been used for or something like that. Uh, that is not necessarily the case. Uh, as I found out last week, there are large sections of France that are uninhabitable due to the fact that they are full of unexploded ordnance. <gasps> Holy uh, cow. France was just as war-torn as every other country, and there are huge sections which are full of mines and unexploded bombs that are simply walled off that you cannot go into. Wow. Uh, because they will they say it will take a thousand years to clear them out. Is there they, an effort right now? They very, very slowly, year by year, clear out inches of the land. Wow. But it will take many generations to clear out that... Are they using those like bomb sniffing rats that I've uh, seen as far in as other I know, cities? That's only in Africa. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> There's but... bomb sniffing rats. Yes, they're these giant rats that are. Um, they're. It's pretty smart. They're rats because they're so light. So if they step on something, they're not going to trigger anything. Um, but they're very smart and they have really good noses and they can sniff out mines. It's How do they tell the person amazing. that there's a mine? I'm just not sure how they would signal to like a human that there's they a mine. Spin there. or they make a sound or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. Or maybe they just stop and they stay in that one place. Who knows? Um, you can look up videos of them though. It's pretty cool. I'll do but, that um, after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we went to um, Israel to go to the um, the area, the river part in Jordan where where Jesus is supposedly baptized. But mm -hmm. right next to that is this giant, giant field of all these mines. And so like, oh you can only God. drive on the road there and back. And you cannot go in any parts of the field there because else you might blow up. So oh. that was interesting. That sounds nice. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> this very Terrible. holy spot covered, like just surrounded by mines. So, oh, yeah. God. I guess those places are all over the place. So. Yeah, I didn't know that France still had so many of them. Yeah. Any of the countries that were destroyed by any of the any of the wars are going to end up with regions like that. But mm. they just, yeah, they can't be cleared. So you're going to have to be able to tell the populations. They, I'm sure, wall them off in ways that they don't in, in say, Sudan. Uh, right. But that's just because France has enough arable land. They can just say, oh, don't farm there. Yeah. Uh, in fact, don't ever go in there. Yeah. And don't let your children go in there and their children or their children or anyone ever. Yeah. <laughs> this is the end of that. It's just, it's so smart. Like, the, you would think, why, like, why would you do this? But it makes so much sense. And they obviously can't, like, they have no statistics about how many people didn't get exploded because they didn't get exploded. But, like, apparently these decks, they do believe that they work really well um, to, you know, to keep people safe in those types of environments. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And this is, this is the final 
uh, deck of cards. And this is not strictly war related. This is still crime related um, or like death related. So finally, there are these cold case cards. And this is a similar idea. This is initiative, an initiative that was started in Florida in 2005. And it has spread to some other places, but it's still not super common. But they print these custom decks of cards that they distribute to prisoners. And each card features a different unsolved crime. So it has an image of the victim. And it says murder or missing person or kidnapping or whatever. It has dates and it has details about the case. And the idea is that some of these prisoners might have some information about these various crimes. They're like, oh, yeah, I was working with a gang back in that time. And I think I remember this person. And it's like so far-fetched, right? Like what a weird idea. And when the, the guy suggested doing this in Florida, you know, he was, he was laughed at. It's like, what are you talking about? This is a ridiculous idea. They have solved 40 cases. Cool. From tips received by people playing these cards. I've heard of these cards before. I'm a huge true crime fanatic. So they've talked about oh. these on a couple episodes of my podcast before. But nice. Well, I did you- not know they had solved crimes based on them. So that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. Um, and you can actually go on floor. Like I was looking up, I, I found it and then I was looking it up more. If you look up cold case cards, like one of the first websites that pops up is like Florida's government website. And they're like, here are the cards we have now. And they have three decks currently circulating. And you can see all of the unsolved crimes in Florida. <laughs> this goes to show how many unsolved crimes are in Florida. Oh, there are unsolved crimes everywhere. But I do think it's funny that it started in Florida. Um, It's definitely something that I feel like they should do more places. Not everywhere is Florida. (laughs) There is a lot of crimes a lot of places, though. Yes. I listen to too much true crime to think otherwise. Florida crimes are strange enough, though, that you can (laughs) point to one of those cases on the cars and they're not just, like, generic. Like, in any (laughs) other area, any other region of the United States, a large, dense urban environment, it might be victim, you know, Bitten in half by saltwater crocodile. Blonde hair, blue eyes, stabbed. (laughs) But in Florida, it's like, was run over by a speeding train that had derailed due to, like, a Fanta heist or something (laughs) like that everything will be so specific. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> I know exactly what that was. Yeah. <laughs> I do think a lot of serial... For some reason, I've just listened to a lot of episodes of True Crime where a lot of serial killers were flee to Florida. I have no <laughs> idea why. Because but Florida, like Bundy, Florida will never Ted arrest Bundy you. there and some, a bunch of other ones. Because <laughs> they're, they're going straight to the swamp. Florida's they think the Florida wild, is someplace like a haven or... Florida is a haven. It's got huge areas of swamp nobody cares about. Yeah, I guess so. We were disappointed going to Florida. We went to the Florida Keys, but it was right after a hurricane. And it was oh, like, no. oh my God, there's <laughs> nothing. It was all destroyed. It was really sad, actually. Um, anyway, th- those are all of the examples I had. And uh, also, I, I didn't go over any of the training games, but there are ton- as Damon said a couple episodes ago, there are a lot of games that are used to train people in the military, which is also just really cool. Um, but yeah, if uh, any listeners know of any other examples of this, I would love to hear it. I mean, the, the usual thing when you talk about games and war is talking about yeah. the combination of Go and Sun Tzu, since Go has long been used to train people for war tactics mm. thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I've never found it particularly useful for me whenever <laughs> I'm going into combat. Not right. So go, but uh, the people swear by it that Go is the most effective training tool if you're going to command troops. That's super interesting because it's so abstract. Well, that's kind of the point is that it's abstract enough that you can say, okay, well, these here are principles that are always used mm. uh, that are not specific to any given region or any given conflict. It's but just that are specific sharpening to your analytical analytical abilities. Yeah, there are just analyses for certain warfare tactics mm. that are just like, you know, cut off people in this way, herd them this direction, mm. reinforce here, don't reinforce there, that you can do with as with something as simple as black and white dots on a grid. Right. And say, if it works with the grid and it works in the world, it'll work anywhere. Right. It works in the most abstract sense. It works in the most specific sense. Um, and I think part of that is just due to the complexity of or the emergent nature of, of a game like Go, where it is a long game and there's a lot of positions that it can take. Um, Maybe there's like, patience is required. You can't like strike immediately necessarily. Things like that. Yeah. But like the the other games like chess that are actually more specific war games mm -hmm. uh, don't necessarily have that because they have a very specific Western style of the idea of I'm going to capture the king. I'm going to move these abstract pieces in this abstract way, hmm. all of which move in a different way in a specific way. Um, doesn't represent actual world like philosophies in mm. any way. Um, that doesn't tell you much. You can only use it sort sort of as a vague analogy for business or something sometimes. Mm. Um, but yeah, Go has been talked about a lot as terms of like, learn Go if you're going to learn war. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's been done for a very long time. Interesting. Uh, we can all become military leaders. Just, just play Go a little bit. Or a lot. <laughs> play that's Go a lot. That's what they say. <laughs> well, no offense to either of you, but I'm not sure I would follow follow either of you to war <laughs> no matter how much go you'd played <laughs> don't whatever you do don't follow me i trip all the time i'd just be tripping everywhere that's your major problem tripping that's your major problem too damon that's why i don't go i don't go to war for tripping too i know but like i never thought about it as being if i ever my, had a gun i just trip and like shoot myself i swear i never thought about my achilles heel being my actual heel but it's, it's i guess it's true <laughs> Oh, God. All right. Well, if you would like to see uh, the pictures and more information about all of the games that I talked about, you can look at the description below, or you can go to our website, which is playdnapodcast.com. It'll have all of our podcast notes plus other episodes. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Play safe, play often, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>